Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Welcome back to the Anchor Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today, we have a guest who needs no introduction, uh, the one and only Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee. Seth, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, Seth, we typically start off the Anchor Pod uh, talking about the educational uh, background of our guests, especially in childhood. Uh, were you a studious young boy? Did you love books? What was education like for you growing up? So um, I started in the public school system uh, as a child, you know, kindergarten through fourth grade. Um, we were living in Maryland at the time. Um, I did get turned on to reading at a very early age while I was still in public school. I got pulled out of public school when we moved in the middle of the school year. My dad uh, took a new job in another state. We ended up uh, leaving our school and homeschooling for a few years. Um, But even before then, uh, my parents were really big on reading. You know, they read a lot of books to us. Uh, Some of my fondest memories uh, as a kid uh, were of us sitting around the dinner table as a family uh, we would finish eating and we would sit there at the table for a half hour, an hour. As long as my dad wanted to read, he would read to us, um, you know, stuff like the Chronicles of Narnia, for example. And he would do all, he would change his voice to do voices for the different characters. And it was really fun and entertaining for us. And we just, we kind of fell in love with using our imaginations uh, to follow along with the story. And uh, I think that really, that really inspired us to, to, to explore reading ourselves. My brother and I both, who I, who I work with now, my brother's our chief technology officer. And he and I just, I mean, we were voracious. Read, we read everything we could get our hands on when we were younger. So um, yeah, in our, in our preteens and early teen years, we were doing a lot of reading. We were, when I was homeschooled, I mean, that it feels to me like my homeschool education was largely in books. It was, it spent a lot of time reading books, both nonfiction and fiction, but I read a lot of fiction. I was really into fiction. I wanted to be a writer myself. Um, I, I think it's really true what Stephen King said. He said, if you don't have the time to read, then you don't have the time or the tools to write. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I took that to heart and I read a lot of books and I, that served me better than anything. I, I tell you what, I, having a lot of reading under my belt and being able to write, um, has paid off a lot more in my career personally than any of the, you know, kind of formal, you know, I don't know my business classes, for example, in college or, uh, accounting classes or anything like that. Like, yeah, I can do basic math and I know how to, you know, add up a couple of cells in an express in a cell spreadsheet. Um, all of that is useful to know how to do, but, but to be able to communicate clearly and effectively, uh, and in my case, being able to incorporate kind of, you know, wit and humor into it is, is obviously very useful, but, um, that's that's really paid off for me. Really paid in my early career as a marketer when I was doing marketing and I had to do like writing ad copy, um, and now you know as a humorist and running a satire business and and having to do uh, uh, you know everything from marketing messaging to ad copy to uh, to funny headline writing to speech writing all of these things. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, my my education was very very heavy on reading. Yeah. Seth, this is a beautiful image uh, picturing you you as a young boy there with, with dad reading out loud at the dinner table. Is that uh, a tradition you've been able to, to carry on with your own kiddos uh, or intend to? And do you do the voices as well? 
Yeah. So what I want to do, I actually, <laughs> I'm not as good at the voices as my dad is. Um, my dad, uh, I, I'm, we're, we're working on the process of starting. We're actually going to start reading Chronicles of Narnia where he reads uh, the books to the kids at our table. Uh, I'd love to have him oh. be a part of that and do that uh, and carry that tradition on in our family. Um, I think they're at an age now. My, my boys are six and nine. I think they're ages where they'll really appreciate that. So I think it's about the right time to start. Yeah, we, we did out loud when, when my boys were six and nine. We did the Lord of the Rings and, and, and it took us about 11 months. And by the time we were done, I, I think I was as tired as Sam and Frodo. It was uh, an intense journey for sure. Felt like um, you climbed uh, the mountains of Mortar yourself. That's right. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your your interest in satire. Uh, how, how, did you discover this interest early on? And then how did you end up becoming the CEO of the Babylon Bee? Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty early on, I, I, uh, I attended Palm Beach Atlantic University here in, in Palm Beach. It's about 30 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. Um, back in 2000, 2000, 2004. And, um, while I was there, I actually wrote an email. Uh, I, I wrote like a satirical email kind of making fun of the school and the faculty and some of the, you know, idiosyncrasies of the school that, that deserve to be kind of picked at. And, and I sent it to the entire school. I sent it to the faculty, the staff, the students, everybody. And I thought it was brilliant, and really funny. They didn't think it was so funny. They were very upset by it. Um, and I almost got suspended and kicked out of the school, but that, that, you know, that was a, that was a big, um, learning experience for me, but it was also just, I don't know. I, I've always had kind of an interest in, uh, speaking the truth, using the, the tools that satire, you know, humor mm -hmm. uses irony and mockery and exaggeration. Um, and, and, and saying something true through those means, I think, is very, it's a very effective way of communicating the truth that gets people to kind of see things from a different perspective. And it's just really fun to see people's reaction to it when it's, when it really hits home and they, and they get it and it resonates with them. And, uh, I don't know, I had a lot of fun with that and, and got in a lot of trouble with it early on. I was probably about 18, 19 <laughs> when that happened. Um, so, you know, yes, I had an early interest in it and part of my punishment, uh, if you could call it that I had to go to the, the, tech department and untangle a bunch of cords, uh, and, and do all these like stupid tasks. Um, uh, but then I also had to sit down with, um, uh, one of the journalism professors there and, and start working on writing, uh, from a different angle, you know, where I was actually doing something positive. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I got a little bit of formal training out of it actually, uh, and some mentorship and, and direction. So that was with Terry Mattingly, actually, he's a, he's a nationally syndicated columnist and, uh, it, you know, he's at get religion. Um, so, you know, and he and I have actually gotten back in touch, uh, all these years later, uh, when he reached out for an interview, uh, not that long ago. So, um, yeah, I had an early interest in satire. I, I got into the marketing world, but, but there was this site that took off, uh, in the early, in the, I don't know, like around 2006 or 2008 or something like that. It was called some e-cards. I don't know if you remember that site, some hmm. e-cards. No. And it was kind of humor in the style of the onion. It was really witty, sarcastic, mm -hmm. uh, biting, edgy humor in the form of e-cards where it was like a one line joke with a, with an image associated with it. And they were like, sometimes they were kind of inappropriate and raunchy, but most of the time they were just kind of witty and funny. And mm -hmm. I loved that style. And I, uh, I wrote a lot of cards for them for a significant period of time for, for several years and kind of, 
uh, honed that ability to do to 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 get a joke into a single sentence, which is what the Babylon Bee does. You know, mm-hmm. Babylon Bee headlines are a joke in one line, basically. Yeah. Um, and we have other jokes in the article, but hardly anybody reads the articles. You know, the joke has got to land in the headline. And uh, and so yeah, I had a lot of a lot of training and practice with that early on too. But I've always enjoyed it. I've loved writing, and I've I've always had a knack for for doing funny there, uh, comedy writing. I'm much funnier on paper than I am in person. It, there was a brilliant one, I think, yesterday, uh, this new uh, stealth COVID variant where you have no symptoms and test negative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Everyone's so got brilliant. that one. Yeah, so brilliant, so brilliant. Uh, Seth, is it your take and, and the folks at Babylon B? I mean, do, do less folks understand conceptually the concept of satire than previous generations? Uh, I don't know that that's the case. Um, I think that the problem with satire in the modern age, the present age, is that it's difficult to distinguish satire from reality. We find that it's hard. It's actually a challenging task. When I when I mentioned, you know, what the tools that satire uses, it uses, you know, humor, irony, exaggeration. Let's focus on exaggeration. How do you exaggerate the absurdity of the present day? The kinds of things when you go to healthline.com and you see the answer to the question, can men get pregnant? The answer is yes. And it's probably more common than you realize. Yeah. Um, when we're, we're talking about math being racist, when we're reading studies out of Stanford university that say the students are more likely to wear masks while riding bicycles than helmets, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of things, it's a joke. The world is a joke. Um, and so, you know, whenever I give talks on this subject, I always start out with this line from G.K. Chesterton when he said back in 1911 that the world's become too absurd to be satirized. Mm. Well, so much more so now than it was then when he wrote that line. And uh, and so I, I think that the, the challenge for people to recognize satire is when you read a Babylon Bee headline, you often really have to think, wait, did this really happen or is this satire? I can't tell. How in the world yeah. am I supposed to tell? I don't hold it against people when they believe that our stories are real, like they're stupid, like they don't get satire. It's it's they're, they're a product of the world that they live in. They can't distinguish satire from reality because reality is satire. Yeah. Wow. That's really well said. Uh, Seth, in addition to being the CEO of the Babylon Bee, I mean, you, you are, are, you have, you're a very influential public person uh, now as well. And, and I think of folks like you and Chris Rufo um, who have hit pretty hard. And I think rightly so, especially uh, around things like CRT and, and gender ideology, really going mainstream in schools, regardless of if parents want that or don't want that, uh, it's kind of been sprung upon everybody very quickly. And, and so I, I certainly agree. There's a lot of room to be critical, but I, I think I, our audience would love to hear you uh, articulate what, what should schools ought to be doing? What does in the, in the modern age uh, or, or any age, what does a good education look like? And where do you see that actually happening, if anywhere right now? Uh well, I have my kids in a private school right now. They go to a Christian private school. And one of the benefits of going to a school like the one that they're in is, you know, there's, there's no woke nonsense. There's no indoctrination that's happening at this school where, where they're smuggling in this radical, progressive, secular, progressive ideology into the curriculum. Uh, they're, not trying to, they're not trying to make these students feel bad about themselves or look down on each other because mm-hmm. of their skin color in the name of fighting racism. Um, you know, they're not, they're not smuggling stuff into the math classes. They're just teaching math. Um, and they're also teaching that they're also, they're, they're also reinforcing objective reality as, as a, as you know, the truth is the truth 
and there's no my truth or your truth. There's no none of this uh, subjectivism that's become so uh, so pervasive and popular. Um, you know, I think at a, at, a, at a minimum, educators should stick to um, the basics of you know reading, writing, arithmetic. Those basic things that everybody everybody can you know even even the ideas when we talk about reading like. The book choices, you know, the, the certain books that you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to read the cat in the hat anymore, apparently, you know, that's really bad. That's racist, but you're supposed to read all these books about like, uh, about gender and sexuality while you're still in kindergarten. I mean, we have things so backwards right now. Uh, there are places though, where I still think you're getting a very sound, very basic education. Um, I, I do think, you know, the, like when I, going back to like my education, where I was reading so many books. You know, that's what I'm trying to instill in my kids is a love for reading because mm-hmm. you really inoculate yourself against a lot of the madness when you when you are when you're reading um, when you're not engaged in the kind of what what Lewis would call chronological snobbery where the ideas of the present age trump everything from the yeah. past like we're smarter now than we used to be <laughs> going back and looking at you know there's there's something to be said for the wisdom of past ages there's nothing new under the sun. And there are a lot of brilliant minds that you can tap into in the past and connecting your, connecting your students, connecting your kids with those minds and those ideas that are much more timeless than we like to think of them as being. Uh, I think that there's tr- absolutely tremendous value in that and that you can really safeguard the, your, your children's minds against some of these mind viruses, as I would call them, of the present mm. age, where, where we're, we're turning truth and reality on its head and trying to redefine it and make it well, whatever we want it to be. Um, so in, in term, when it comes to like curriculum and stuff like that, I'm not an expert on that. I can't speak to any of those things, but, um, you know, when it comes to like religion and philosophy and theology and, uh, in having a, it, having a good, well-rounded education in these things. And rather than just buying into the, the modern, uh, whatever the, the, the trends of the day are and promoting those as if they, they are the new truth, the new reality. Um, I think that's crucially important. Yeah. And I think you articulated it perfectly. And I think this is what's at the very heart of the classical renewal movement is wanting to put students in front of things that are, are not changing and that are actually timeless. And I think another Je- Chesterton quote that I'll, I'll, I'll botch, you know, is that, um, you know, uh, you don't, you don't want to be a slave to your own generation. I think the way Chesterton puts it is that Catholicism frees a man from being a slave of his own generation, but contemporary education can enslave somebody to being a product of their own generation as well. Uh, I think what you're, you're saying is on point. Um, Seth, I love to talk about Elon Musk, uh, Babylon B being suspended from Twitter. Um, my first question, and I, by the way, I love you, you had Elon Musk, which is kind of mind blowing on your Babylon B podcast. So go over and listen to that. Uh, if you're listening to this, um, how influential was the Babylon B suspension and, uh, Elon Musk, uh, kind of starting, uh, the takeover. We'll see where all that goes down the road, but clearly he was, he was paying attention. And by the way, kudos to you for kind of standing on principle uh, on that and not, not deleting the tweet. <laughs> well, that comes back to the conversation about truth, right? About trying to, trying to preserve um, both freedom of speech, um, but, and also uh, objective reality, objective truths, you know, like insisting that two and two make four, and not going along and saying that it makes five just because they're trying to tell you that it makes five and you have to agree with them. Um, you know, we don't agree that two and two makes five. We don't agree that a man can become a woman um, and, that it, and that it's misgendering not to, to call them whatever they want to be called. You know, it's hmm. these, these, these things, somebody's got to push back on that. So 
Um, you know, we're, we're, it's unfortunate that, that we're still offline as a result of taking that stand. But if I could go back and do it again, I would do the same exact thing. I don't, I don't think that we engaged in hateful conduct by making a joke that was rooted in the truth. Um, so, you know, the fact that it was a joke coupled with the fact that it's riding on the back of the truth and not some false narrative or, or bigotry, like they're suggesting that it is, uh, I stand by it. So, um, I'm certainly not going to admit that it was hateful conduct, but, but with Musk, you know, I think Musk, uh, he noticed that we weren't on Twitter anymore, that we weren't tweeting anymore. He follows us and he's always, you know, he's always enjoyed our content. He engaged with it a lot. And that's cool, man. That's like one of the benefits of, of being on platforms like Twitter. You know, a lot of people are like, well, why don't you just leave Twitter? Why don't you leave Facebook? Well, this is where people like Elon Musk are for one thing. I mean, this is where Joe Rogan is. This is where these people are finding our content, interacting with our content, sharing it more widely and broadly. This is the public square of the modern age. So we want to be there. We don't want to sideline ourselves from that discussion and remove ourselves from where we can have that kind of interaction. It's, it's, It's extremely beneficial, not just to us as a business, but but to like, if you have something to say and you want to reach as many people as possible, you want to be on the platform where the people are. So that just makes good sense. And, uh, and Musk noticed that we weren't tweeting anymore. And he, you know, he, he reached out to see if, uh, what the explanation for that was. So Hmm. we did have a conversation with him. And, and I think that, um, I think that he had already decided to make a move to buy Twitter. I think that our situation only reinforced for him, the importance of going down the path he was already on. So, uh, he had started, those wheels were already in motion. It came out later that he had already purchased 9% of the company, um, before we'd even gotten suspended. So he was already going down that path, but um, it, I, I certainly think it helped to spur him on to take action and uh, and and only reinforce for him that it was a, a good thing for him to try to get involved and restore free speech. Yeah, um, well, let's talk about the suspension itself. I mean, I've, I've heard you speak about this concept of punching down. Uh, in this case, in particular, we're talking about a, a person, I guess I, I should say, uh, of tremendous privilege, power, influence. Uh, can, can you talk about this concept of punching down and why this is not, not a justified accusation? Yeah, I disagree with the, the premise behind this idea of punching down. For those who are listening who may not be familiar with what that is, there's this, there's this idea in comedy that as a, as a comic or a humorist, a satirist, whatever type of comedy you're doing, um, that there are certain people that you shouldn't make fun of. And, the, and those people that you shouldn't make fun of are the ones that have less power and privilege than you, right? So, so if there are people who are in marginalized communities and they're, and they're dealing with hardship or they're, you know, uh, facing discrimination or, or whatever, um, they should be off limits for comedy. Um, you know, and, and, and that that's, I think, I think there's a number of problems with that. I think that, I think that to begin with, it's, it's really condescending. If I was in a marginalized community, a so-called marginalized community, because I take issue that, that, that some of these communities are marginalized. Um, but if I was in a so-called marginalized community and somebody was saying, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to joke about you because I, I feel like you're too marginalized and oppressed for me to joke about you. I think that would be condescending. You're not treating me fairly when you do that. Um, I think the way to treat people fairly is to joke about them indiscriminately. And, uh, and that's how you, that's how you treat them equally. You know, it's like women are considered, uh, beneath me on the power and privilege spectrum, right? Cause I'm a man and women are, women are, women deal with the patriarchy and the feminists are trying to get women up onto man, man's level, right? Well, okay. So if I'm above them, I can't joke about them without, without, uh, without punching down at them. It's just, I, I just think that's so condescending to suggest that mm. I'm only reinforcing the idea that women are beneath me. If I think that in my head, when I'm coming up with mm. a joke, you know what? I can't joke about women. They're beneath me. 
I mean, I think that's extremely <laughs> yeah. condescending and, uh, and we shouldn't be thinking in those terms at all. When a comedian is writing a joke or a satirist is trying to come up with a joke, I think that the way that they should be thinking is, is it funny? Does it hmm. communicate some truth through humor? Is it, is it, you know, you, you certainly want to be concerned with whether or not your joke is riding on the back of, of reality or a narrative. Um, and if it's riding on the back of reality and it's saying something true and it's funny, who cares if it's offensive? Like that's what comedy does. Comedy is offensive. There's someone's the butt of the joke. Hmm. Um, and this, this idea that some people need to be protected from jokes while others, you can say and do anything you want about them. That reinforces inequality, not hmm. it, it's not fixing the problem. So I don't think that we can fix past discrimination with present discrimination or past inequality with present inequality. That's not the answer. So the whole thing, I, I reject the whole premise, but, but also this, this idea of punching down when, when it comes to like, well, these are marginalized and oppressed people. No, they're not. These are people who, in the case of, you know, our, our Twitter joke with Rachel Levine, this is a white male, high ranking government official for one thing. Um, but, you know, these, these are people who fall into categories, protected categories. These are protected categories where if mm. you so much as joke about them uh, or their ideas, not just ridiculing them personally or trying to put them down, but I'm talking about their yeah. ideas or whatever they're trying to advance then you can be then you can be canceled you can lose your job you can lose your livelihood they have the power to punish you for so much as making fun of them they're not marginalized or oppressed they're the ones with scary power and you're the one tiptoeing and dancing around trying not to lose your livelihood by making the wrong joke and and, and mm -hmm. misstepping so i think really it's the opposite of what they say wow. i think all of the power is in their is on their side of the court so uh, i disagree with the whole premise of the whole thing i don't think punching down is, is a valid uh, criticism mm -hmm. of the kind of i don't think we're punching down i think we're punching up if anything um, but i don't think we're obligated to punch up uh, Seth, i i grew up on uh you know john stewart uh david letterman uh even snl when i my memories as a, as a kid and i grew up in a conservative house uh was that the right wasn't funny the left was funny, you know, and I think maybe that was because they were shocking the maybe the stuffy sensitivities of the right. That seems to have kind of reversed now and uh, that you have the the conservatives, the right in the Babylon Bee is at the forefront of this is as funny as suddenly the left has become uh, very uptight about what can and cannot be said. Is that is that shift accurate? Well, so the the. The comedian's job, uh, from my perspective, the satirist's job, is to poke holes in the popular narrative, to make fun of the things that the that the the power. When when we talk about when you when we talk about this idea about oh you shouldn't punch down you should punch up. Well, what does punching up mean? Punching up means the powers that be, their ideas, their tyranny, whatever they're trying to impose upon you. That's what you make fun of, right? Well, who are the powers that be? The progressive left, the woke people, you know, the ones, the corporations, the politicians, the government, the big tech companies, uh, all of this stuff, the media and entertainment world, the universities, they're all pushing the same stuff and they have all the power and influence right now in our culture. And so that's the stuff like Joe Rogan said it really well when he was talking about us and, and some of these issues, he said, woke stuff is the funniest stuff today. He didn't say stuff, but I'm going to bleep out what, what he said. He goes, yeah. woke stuff is the funniest stuff. And the Babylon Bee makes fun of woke stuff. And that's why they're so funny. Um, a lot of comedians are avoiding those topics. They are, in fact, advancing and defending and, and shielding the popular narrative instead of poking holes in it and making fun of it and mocking it. And in that sense, they're derelict in their duty. They're not doing what they should be doing. And that's why they're not funny. 
when you're mm-hmm. when you're pushing the popular narrative instead of making fun of it, you're not a comedian, you're a propagandist. So, you know, the comedians who are willing to make fun of it, I think there's tremendous opportunity for other comedians to be successful like we are by simply making the jokes that you're not supposed to make by actually punching up. I'm sure some of our, our some of our audience can probably relate to this, but I, I get texts from my dad or my sister or others with new Babylon B posts that'll come out. Um, so I've got a handful of my favorite. Do you, uh, as the CEO of the Babylon B, have a couple all-time favorite headlines? Uh, uh... I mean, there's some that I've written that obviously I'm, uh, uh, you know, they were my headlines. So I think they're the best. <laughs> um, but no, there, I mean, there, there are some that I think have generated a lot of controversy and they're really funny. And for that reason, they're kind of notable. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best of our best. But like we did, we did a joke about how CNN had purchased an industrial size washing machine to spin the news in before publishing it, which is just a silly, <laughs> and it's a picture of this yeah. washing machine with a CNN logo on it. And it got fact checked and we got, we got threatened with being kicked off of Facebook for making this joke because it was rated false. It was the most absurd joke ever. Um, yeah. Jokes like that, that get a lot of traction are really funny. We had one uh, that went viral early on. I think it was in 2017 or something. And we, we made a joke about Joel Osteen um, uh, sailing around the flooded streets of Houston when Hurricane Harvey flooded Houston. <laughs> he was sailing yeah. around the flooded streets of Houston in his luxury yacht, handing out copies of your best life now. And uh, <laughs> and so, you know, jokes like that, you know, it went viral because a lot of people thought it was true, which is really uh-huh. funny. It's like, OK, well, maybe there maybe there's something to this joke if people are actually believing it. The tendency is to accuse the satirist of making his jokes too believable. But really, the problem is that that reality is too close to satire. And sometimes we're on to something when we're, when we're making these jokes. That's why people believe them. Um, I think it's the mark of good satire. Uh, one of my other favorites is, uh, is, a, is a joke that we made about Trump back in 2019, I think. Uh, we, had, we quoted him. It, it said, Trump, quote, I have done more for Christianity than Jesus himself, unquote. <laughs> and yeah. And that went crazy viral. Like the left shared that. Like they, they wanted to believe that it was true that he actually yeah. said this. And this one was a, this one's a classic. It's one of the all time greats because it was funny. It was believable because you could see Trump really saying that. And then it got fact checked and rated false. And then two years later, he actually said it. He went on some radio show and he said he's done more for Christianity and religion in general than any any other person in history. So. Uh, you know, jo- jokes like that are really fun yeah. when they, not only when they get fact checked, but when they come true. So, I mean, those are, those are some of my favorites. All right, Seth, final question. Uh, we always end the anchor podcast, uh, asking our guests, what, what is the book that has been most formative for you? Uh, maybe a book that you reread. You mentioned Chesterton earlier. I, I try to reread orthodoxy every year. Uh, but what is it for you for, uh, Seth Dillon? I love orthodoxy. Um, Chesterton's great. Uh, I don't know that I've ever narrowed it down to a single book. I, I, I'll tell you, I'll, I, I'll maybe dance around it a little bit and just say that I think probably the most influential author, and I've, I've already mentioned him because my dad was, was reading us Narnia when we were kids, but, but C.S. Lewis has been ex- extremely impactful on me. You know, probably, probably most no, notable of all of his works that I've read many times would be Mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, notable for me, at least. I mean, it's also one of his more popular ones, but um, screw tape letters, abolition of man. Um, you know, some of the collections of works like God in the dock, um, miracles. I love miracles. Um, a lot of his books, the problem of pain, it, it goes on and on and on, you know, he's written so many things and I've read everything that he's written. 
And, you know, I don't agree with him on every, I don't think he's right about it, about absolutely everything, but there was something, he had a way of kind of seeing where things were going and understanding mm. the deeper issues behind what's actually happening. You know, he understood a lot of the dangers of this subjectivism that we're seeing today about our own truth and, and the importance of affirming objective reality. Um, and that there's even a, a objective aesthetic truths, you know, there mm. are, he, he was, he was very tuned into that. He was very tuned into the dangers of this rise in like scientific scientific materialism and scientism and and the dangers of science becoming kind of like the pseudo religion um, yeah. and replacing religion he saw all of this light years ahead of when it was actually mm. really coming to fruition on a, on a wide scale in our culture and uh and so you know reading him and stuff that he wrote you know 60 50 40 years ago um it's just remarkable how in tune he was and how um and how he saw ahead of his time. Um, but he was just, yeah, very, very form formative for me just because he, um, you know, he was an atheist who became a Christian and he mm -hmm. offered intellectual reasons for why he became a Christian that I found very compelling and they reinforced my faith. And so at a very early age, you know, a lot of people I know have credited him and other apologists like him, not necessarily just him, but for me personally, him, uh, Planninga, William Lane Craig, a couple of other apologists, John Lennox, you know, uh, these guys have, who have thought deeply about these questions, these deeper questions about objective reality and the existence of the universe and the, and the, and, you know, Jesus claim to divinity and all of these things. Um, they've thought through these things and offered arguments, kind of giving you in, intellectual permission to, to, to have faith, um, mm -hmm. you know, where you don't have to have intellectual impediments getting in the way because they've reasoned through them and saw that, saw that for the most part, they're fallacious. Um, and I, so that was, that's, that's extremely, extremely valuable to me. Um, so I would, I would list him at the top of the list of, of, of writers that impacted. Yeah. Me. Love that. Can it can never go wrong with C.S. Lewis. Uh, again, we're here with Seth Dillon, the CEO of the Babylon Bee. Uh, Seth, I, I want to thank you before you go for, uh, just introducing some levity into the national conversation. Uh, always much appreciated. And also, uh, as a, as a pro-life Catholic, uh, for your clarity, uh, and speaking, uh, about, pro-life issues. Uh, thank you for that as well. You've certainly put yourself out there uh, with a great deal of fortitude and courage. Uh, so thanks. Please come join us again, Seth. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anger. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.